0: Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body, literally from his skin to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Super weird. We'll come back to that. Then, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise, we command you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to both all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it told fifty thousand pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And that, just so you know, this little interjection here by Luke as he's writing to Theophilus, he's really setting up the outline for Paul's travels through the rest of the book of of Acts, He's going to go into Macedonia, down into Achaia, which is, in, which is where Corinth is. Remember, he's going down there to collect the gift, and he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he eventually goes to uh, Rome as a prisoner. So, after I have been there, I must also see Rome, he says. Verse 22. So, he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, his assistants, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Verse 23. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana or Artemis, brought no small profits to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of failing, falling into disrepute, But also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised, and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion, with uproar. And they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And while Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them... Did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell from, uh, from Zeus or from heaven? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, you ought to be reckless. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right, all the way back to verse 11. So I've titled the book of Acts with just this umbrella statement in regards to God's workmanship. His workmanship is what we are really Watching as we travel through this letter that Luke has written to Theophilus to proclaim the message of Christ. I pulled that his workmanship from Ephesians 2.10, which talks about that we are God's workmanship, that we were created in him, in Christ Jesus, for good works. And these good works, these aren't things that we strive in. These are things that we walk in as we follow Jesus in what here is called the way. So again, back here in verse 11, it says, this is the God who is working these unusual miracles in this community. And you look, this is, this is super strange. You have Paul, who's a tent maker. He's wearing handkerchiefs whether they're wrapped around his head. He's got his, he, got, he has his workman's apron. These are things that have been in contact with Paul's skin that he's sweating in. And whether he's handing these things out or people are stealing them from Paul, they're taking this object, and they're going to a sick person and placing this object on the sick person, saying that this is Paul, from Paul the Apostle. He's, God is doing these miracles through the agency of Paul. So really, it's God's workmanship that we're watching. But Paul's the one, the, the mediator between this, this miracle and that these people are witnessing, and people are being healed. And not only are they being healed, demons are being dri- driven out of them. Is that weird? Does anybody think that that's not weird? All right, it's very weird. And he says that these are unusual miracles. It means that they're not ordinary. They're for a specific time, a specific place, a specific occasion, a specific purpose. This isn't something that we are to pursue an experience and you can sit in a lot of ministries that will you know they'll sell this kind of stuff. We've prayed over this cloth if you send in your love gift we will mail this cloth to you and you too shall be healed of your ailments and your demons and whatnot. Again this is this is the false proclamation that so many people will um, use the name of Christ taking his name to themselves as we're going to sit in in a minute as those who do not have a relationship with Jesus try and use his name for their own gain and for their own power and it just doesn't work. But the reality is is our God is outside of his creation. The strangest miracle that has ever occurred is creation itself. This being created the heavens and the earth in 6 days. That's weird. It's out of the ordinary. A specific time, a specific place, a specific occurrence, a specific purpose God had in his mind to do this supernatural, extraordinary, unique thing. And as we travel through the Old Testament and the New Testament, often, often... The miracles that we read about, those supernatural interactions between God and his creation that's beyond our five senses where God is coming in and he's violating the natural laws that he has established, they're really strange. It's really the story of of God anytime that he's stepped into human flesh in in any circumstance in the Old Testament, it's strange. Who is Jacob wrestling with? That was God. That was the Lord, Yahweh in the flesh, wrestling with Jacob. That's weird. Moses seeing a bush that is burning. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It was weird. God did that one time. And we sit in uh, Daniel. How many? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. One time. Daniel, the vision that God gave to him of the Messiah coming to the ancient of days, receiving the kingdom. These are very unique, supernatural interactions that God has had with his creation intentionally. So, as we sit in this passage, these are, this is weird. It's strange. Luke says that it's weird and that it's strange. Luke is not with Paul at this time. So you can understand that Paul, communicating to Luke what was going on in Ephesus, Paul was saying, God was doing some really weird stuff. And it was awesome, but it was for a purpose. Now the issue, I'm harping on this because... Paul was in this community for two years. We're told that he's teaching at the school, the school of Tyrannus. It's just a location. The name's not really important. But there he is, preaching the gospel, teaching the word of God, discipling the disciples in this community to the point where it's had a tremendous impact, not just in Ephesus, but we read last week that it impacted all of Asia. All of Asia knew who Jesus was. Tremendous impact. The issue that comes from that is whenever you see something that is successful in life, what do human beings want to do? We want to imitate it. I want to experience what Paul experienced. I want to experience what Moses experienced. Joseph, Jacob, think of your heroes that you have in the word of God. Do you not want to experience God the way that they did? You want to see your creator, your maker. You want to know him. You want to understand him. You want to live beyond, you know, the the confines of this flesh that are so restricting. We want to experience these things. And the danger is, is chasing after Jesus on this life's journey and chasing after the experience. This is when things get really wayward. This is when it's it's easy for people to be manipulated by a charismatic personality and chasing the experience and being abused in those relationships rather than just chasing Jesus. And if he gives you a supernatural experience, you get to geek out with him on that and say, whoa, that was really cool. God, do it again. But again, we're pursuing Jesus. We're not pursuing the experience. Here in this community, you have these, these itinerant Jewish exorcists. So this is there's, there's a lot of writing from this period of history. So just because a Jew wrote something does not mean that it is holy writ, that it is holy scripture. You can sit in all kinds of influences that these writings have had upon occultish behavior um, and different religious practices over time. But here, in this, in this time, you had traveling Jewish priests. So, those who are outside of Jerusalem, they're outside of that hierarchy and that authority. And you have to assume that, the, again, the writing here is that this man, his name is Sceva, he's called a high priest, a chief priest. This is a title that he's taken to himself in the community that he's, that he's uh, interacting with. When you sit with occultish behavior, uh, when, you, when you sit in Rome, Greek, uh, Greece, their history, uh, the their gods of the pantheons here, specifically in Ephesus, in regards to uh, Artemis or Diana, um, the influence of satanic power, lies, schemes, influence, however you want to describe that, is substantial. This would be a community where there would be many demon-possessed individuals. And whether the families knew anything about the true and living God or not, if you interacted with somebody that was possessed by a demon, you don't need to have Jesus in you to realize that something's really off with that individual. So therefore, there's a need for exorcists. Which these exorcists, they used specific training of the, the text described to us uh, systems of sayings. If you say the formula words in this way, this formula will give you a power over this particular demon. And usually they're, they're saying something in the name of a more powerful demon to have authority and command this lesser demon. It's super strange and it's super weird. But what I want to pull out of this and just to understand, when God created the heavens and the earth in six days... At some point, he created these supernatural beings that we identify as angels. There's different classes. There's different types. But when you go and sit in that account of the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we're introduced to this being who takes on, indwells this serpent. And what happens in the Garden of Eden? However it works out, however the structure works out, God created man, male and female, in his image. And the sense that we get from Scripture is that Satan and a third of the angels that went with him, there's some kind of jealousy between how God created them and how God created Adam and Eve to be in God's likeness and to image God. So therefore, you have God creating Adam and Eve, male and female, man, after the angels, but putting them in a position of dominion over the angels. And Satan's scheme has been consistent throughout all of history. He doesn't have power over us, but what he does have is words. So when you watch Satan in the serpent come to Adam and Eve, what does he cause them to do? He causes them to question God. God's withholding from you, God's withholding power, God's withholding image. And when Adam and Eve believed the lie of Satan, what happened to them? They were wounded and they were naked. You look at the same scene here. As, these, as this demon is possessing this particular individual and you have these exorcists, that realize the power of the name of Jesus in the community to be able to free people from demonic possession, they take that name of Jesus to themselves and they take that formula to themselves and they have an interaction with this demon and saying, by the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches, we're, gonna, you know, we're, we're commanding you to get out of this individual. And how does the demon respond? It says, Jesus I know and Paul I know. But who are you? And the words for know there, they're two different Greek words. One of them, when he says, Jesus I know, it's Jesus I know experientially. And just think about that statement out of the mouth of this evil spirit. I know Jesus experientially. This demon knows exactly who the Son of God is. Paul I know cognitively. Whether this demon ever had any interaction with Paul, ever seen him, ever heard him before, doesn't sound like it, but he knew who Paul was in this community and in their own spiritual hierarchy. And the, the, the communication that this passage gives to us is that, that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with the God who created you, there is no power in his name. It's not some magical formula ...that is being pronounced. So here, this demon jumps on them... ...and the attack of the enemy... ...in this circumstance is what? Leaving the the individuals involved... ...naked and wounded. Same tactic that Satan has always had... ...all throughout history. He wants you to be separate in your relationship... ...from the God who created you. And the whole purpose of any interaction... ...that he has with you in your life... ...whatever promises are given... Again, there's all kinds of lies that sit out there. There's all kinds of whisperings that he attempts us to buy into day in and day out. We're told that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spirits and princes and principalities. These, this, this host of wickedness. His goal is to leave you naked. To leave you unclothed. And ultimately, that, that lack of clothing, it's not the imagery isn't physical clothing. It's to be unclothed from the righteousness of God, from his life. To be wounded. Again, death was the result of Adam and Eve's sin. They lost the righteousness of God. And as they lost the righteousness of God, they lost God's life. And they were now subject to the vicious, harsh ruler of death. And that is Satan's activity throughout all of history. Left him naked and wounded. But this is a story that caused fear. It caused intimidation in the community. All the Jews dwelling there. All the Greeks dwelling there. Fear falls upon them. Awe of who Jesus is. As Paul is proclaiming the gospel, he is in the community telling them, this is, this is who Jesus is. This is what he did. This is what he taught. This is what he suffered. This is how he was rejected. Here is his death on the cross. Here is his resurrection. Here is his ascension. Here is his kingdom. Here is his return. All of this information is being communicated to the Ephesians and ultimately to all of Asia at this time. And what does it say about Jesus? The name of the Lord Jesus is what was magnified. Not Paul's name, not Paul's power, but the name of Jesus because there's something about him. There's something about him that's foreign to this culture. There's something about Jesus that's foreign to the context of their life experience, they're witnessing. This isn't. This isn't just some. For them, exorcism and the formulas of it would be known. Uh, it would. It would have been witnessed in this community. So to watch. People who have legitimate power over demons in their community take that name but have no relationship and to watch them fail and to watch the demon have victory. And then to sit in that testimony of the Jesus that Paul is preaching and the the unusual miracles that are being performed, what happened to Jesus' name? When you magnify something, it gets big. You put a microscope up here. You put a little speck of dust under there. You look through that lens as we're talking about vision. Jesus is magnified. Everything else disappears, and what you were looking at becomes big. It has everything to do with Jesus needs to be the largest person, thing, opinion, idea, behavior, words. Fill in the blank. Jesus is everything. Jesus, be my vision. Let me see you Let me see myself with your eyes. Let me see people with your eyes. And as you sit in the, the account of what happens in this community, it says those who believe that they come, that they come confessing, and they come telling of their deeds. In context, it seems like they came um, telling their Secret spells that they had purchased. So you're talking about a community that is ingrained in occultish behavior for long periods of time. You look at the value of these books. This is over a 100 years of daily wages is the value of these books. And for a lot of this, you're talking about little scrolls, scrolls that would have sayings. If you say this sentence in this way, you will have power over this in your life and we sit in this in our culture and all kinds of charlatans if you have this rock in your house it's going to create this kind of ambience if you eat this kind of food this is how healthy you are going to be not just physically but spiritually we listen to that kind of narrative constantly so you go into the self-help section of the bookstore those physical bookstores that still exist and imagine just a large bonfire but it's not people going to the public place and taking books off the shelves and burning them. It's people coming out of what the information that they've sat in and their own study, how they think that life operates, how they think who they think God is. And as they come to understand who Jesus is, here's the radical impact. Not just the impact, not just the influence, but the power of the gospel. What was magnificent to me? And listen, this is is what I titled this morning's message, just picking up off the declaration for them about the magnificence of their great goddess Diana. For them, she, this being, this demon behind the she, and all the religious practices associated with the worship of this goddess were magnificent to this culture. The temple of Diana in Ephesus it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world twice I think is it's more than twice the size of the Parthenon just a substantial building a wondrous building that this community took pride in it was in their community that they were guardians of and all of a sudden what used to be important to them its magnificence became what the word is uh, in regards to Diana being despised, that Diana became nothing, and that her magnificence was taken down literally. And this is for our own life. What, what is it that you consider to be magnificent? What is it about Jesus? What is it about God? What is it about the Holy Spirit? What is it about his word that causes you to think that he and his words are grand, splendor, magnificent, majestic. I mean, these are all synonyms that we use to describe God and his glory and his holiness and his love. But what is it about God that you personally consider to be magnificent? We just, the last song that we sang, oh, how he loves us. For those of you who have experienced the love of God, when you know that you absolutely do not deserve love, love becomes just magnificent and overwhelming. And it causes, we sit in that position of reality and clarity and it's, Lord, I want nothing else other than you, but the gospel has an impact. Are you who you were after you came to the Lord? Some of you have had a relationship with Jesus your entire life to one degree or another. And you've picked up shrines. You've picked up gods. You've picked up goddesses. You've picked up things that you consider to be magnificent and that you hold on to that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. And this community, again, the impact is this stuff that I consider to be valuable No longer has any value to me at all. It is worthless and it just needs to be put on top of the bonfire. Think of the impact of this event in this community. Now, we're going to, in a few weeks, we're going to be sitting in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus has some words for the church in Ephesus. And what are his words? He compliments them in many ways for their work, their relationship, how they're involved in the community, the things that they consider important, who they're standing against, the Nicolaitans. But Jesus says, but this one thing I have against you, you have left your first love. So here where it talks about the name of the Lord Jesus became magnified and magnificent to them. They hear their behavior, these radical behaviors of letting go of their culture. So you have Demetrius the silversmith that is standing in opposition to how Jesus is changing his culture, his economy, his life, his business, yes? There are gonna be many others that said, praise the Lord, they, they let go of business. They let go of family. They let go of relationships. They let go of religion. They let go of their economy. They let go of their politics. They burned all of this stuff for his name's sake. And there at the end of uh, verse 30, it says that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed as the idea of the word of the Lord grew in its ruling power over people's lives. That this and this alone, his word, is what has ruling authority. Its commands are my commands. It, it, his words through here, um, I submit myself to obey. We submit ourselves to obey his commands. It has ruling authority. So not only is Jesus becoming big and magnified, but his word is ultimately what is giving me the rules and the instructions for my life ruling power is growing. And clearly, when you have that kind of impact and that kind of change in a community, when Jesus has this kind of power in your life, there is always going to be opposition. So Demetrius stands up, and there's this great commotion about the way, again, this, this, uh, this title, the early title for followers of Jesus. And when you look at this, Jesus is impacting their politics. Jesus is impacting their economics. Jesus is impacting their cultural pride. Jesus is impacting their religion. As you sit in the experience here, this this isn't because of legislation that has gone on. This is because human beings, individuals, have been made alive. You used to be one way, you used to be doing one thing, and now you have a relationship with your creator, and your life is radically different. The things that you long for, the things that you do, things have changed. And it, when that happens, when enough of the old become alive and become new, that changes all of these areas of our lives. It's, just, it's a natural consequence. And for so many of us, what do we want to do? We want to hold on to our lives. Demetrius is sitting in a time when he can point the finger at followers of the way are impacting his pocketbook. If you want to make somebody mad, kick them where it hurts, right in the pocketbook. Mess with somebody's politics. We sit in this in our culture right now. If you want to have an inflammatory conversation, get into a political conversation. If you want to get into an inflammatory conversation, get into a religious conversation. If you want to have an inflammatory conversation, start talking about economics and finances. If you want to make somebody mad and you want to have an inflammatory conversation, let's, let's hit somebody in their pride, in their community pride, in their national pride. And this is where Demetrius and this community is getting hit They're getting hit in all of these areas where, again, the message of the gospel stands in opposition to everything that they stand for. Paul is proclaiming that the things that we are making with our hands, that they have nothing to do with God. That these are not gods themselves. That these don't represent uh, the gods that we worship. And again, he's using this motivational speech to well up violence. Violence. Because they have no legal recourse against Paul and the followers of the way. So, what do you do? Well, mob rule. They're trying to influence uh, their culture because their new culture that they're sitting in is impacting their pocketbooks. Kind of last idea that I want to sit in this morning. Look at verses, I'm going to put my glasses on. Verse 32, verse 39. In verse 41, all of them use this word assembly. And in, in the Greek, it's ecclesia. Nine times out of 10, the word ecclesia is translated as church. So again, when you look at what a church is, it is we have been called out of the community. We have been called out of the community, and we are gathering and we are assembling for a purpose, this assembly, what are they being gathered for? Some of them know, and some of them don't know. And again, you sit in, this, is a, this is a major city in Rome at the time. This, this amphitheater can seat roughly 25,000 people. So the entire city did not come in. But you can hear the commotion as Demetrius and and the Silversmith Guild are having their meeting, and they're all inflamed by what's going on. They're going out into the community, and they're stirring up a mob, and people are listening to different words, and they're all gathering into this amphitheater for a reason. And you can picture it, like little kids being curious and wanting to run with the crowd, and parents holding them back, like, oh, no, you don't. Because, again, there, there's wisdom. This, a mob often turns violent, and you sit in these masses of people where they're in confusion and they're in an uproar. Paul is l- using language where he's making fun of their stupidity. Because it's just, I mean, how often do people just rush into a crowd and gather, and they don't even know why that they're there? How many people are gathering in congregations throughout this world today that they did not gather in the name of Jesus, but they've gathered for some other purpose, and some of them don't even know why they've gathered? How many congregations throughout the world today are they are not gathered in the name of Jesus? They are gathered in the name of their nation. They are gathered in the name of their politics. They are gathered in the name of money, of their economy. I call it Jesus junk. I mean, you can sit and how how, mu- how much Jesus junk is marketed to you as a believer in Jesus Christ? How many emails do you get? How many mailers do you get? As a congregation, our mailbox gets filled with Jesus junk—stuff that people want to sell. That maybe their their heart is in the right place, but again, they're gathered for economic reasons because this is where their livelihood comes from. How many people are gathered through congregations throughout this world today that are gathered in the name of a religion that's just as much of a god or goddess as Diana and has nothing to do with who Jesus Christ is? This is why when we assemble, when we gather, we gather in the name of Jesus the Messiah alone. I intentionally do not have an American flag in this room because we do not gather in the name of the United States of America. We do not gather in the name of politics. We do not gather in the name of the economy, good, bad, or indifferent. We assembled this morning as the body of Christ, as the ecclesia, As the church, not in confusion, not in disorder, but in the name of Jesus. My sole responsibility and my role is to make the name of Jesus be magnified. My job is to make Jesus magnificent to your cognitive mind. Jesus, I know experientially. Paul, I know cognitively. But who are you? My role, the only way I can impact you is cognitively. I can make Jesus magnificent in speech. I can give you nuggets of information that cause you to wonder and give you a a new piece of knowledge and information about who Jesus Christ is. That's all I get to do. Only the great God who created you can supernaturally do his work in your life so that you know Jesus experientially. That he's not my mom's Lord. He's not my dad's Lord. Jesus is my Lord. He is my God. The Holy Spirit, again, we talked about last week about, uh, about like this baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit coming in indwelling individuals, multiple at a time in the scene that we looked at last week. But ultimately, you are an individual. You have individually been created by God in your personality, your culture, your context, and all of our diversity. I mean, all you have to do is look around this room. We are all so different from one another. You have experienced God in ways that I'll never experience him because he has uniquely loved you. He's uniquely indwelt you. He's uniquely allowed you to see him. He's uniquely allowed you to hear him. He's uniquely allowed you to trust him, to keep following him in the way. In your own journey as you followed him, how magnificent has he become? And the challenge is, is how dull has he become? Is he just another name in the mix of the pot? As we gather, as we come across the threshold of this place, or whether it's online on Zoom and home fellowships, it doesn't matter. As often as we gather together, whatever the context is, let it be in the name of Jesus. Let his name be magnified. Not the politics, not the religion, not the pride, not the economics, nothing else. Let the name of Jesus be magnified. Let the word of God Grow in its ruling power and prevail over your life? Do you feel wounded? Do you feel naked and exposed? What did God do for Adam and Eve as He caused them, forced them to flee from their house, from the Garden of Eden, from paradise? What did God do for them? He clothed them, He gave them a promise from the very beginning. Didn't give him the name of Jesus, but he gave him the hope of Jesus. There's coming a day when your seed, Eve, is going to crush the head of this power that stands in opposition to you. And the only way that this power has authority in your life is if you give Satan permission and say, come in. The only way that Jesus has power over your life is when you have a relationship with him. You say, Jesus, come in. Rule. Be my all and all. In all of my sight, in all of my hearing. Worship team, come on up. Jesus, we are seeking you right now. We need your mind. We are told that you, Holy Spirit, that you have the mind of Christ, that you have the mind of God. You are God. Your word tells us that you are transforming us into the image of Jesus day by day grace upon grace, glory upon glory. All of us, Lord, we used to be identified as children of wrath, children of disobedience. But God, you did not leave us naked and wounded and ashamed. Through your grace, through your love, through your mercy, you have pursued us. We bend the knee to you, Jesus. You clothe us. You heal us. Those things that we used to consider to be magnificent, Lord, they fade. They no longer have power over us and our thoughts and our minds and our lives. Jesus, be magnified in me. Jesus, I submit myself to your word as my sole ruling authority. May your word and your will prevail in my life. And wherever I find myself assembled with your children, we assemble in the name, in the joy, in the grace, and the wonder, and the awe, and the power of you. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us life. Thank you for giving us access to the Father. Father, we worship you. With the crowd that we see in Revelation. around your throne with our hands lifted, with our hearts lifted, with our minds lifted, with our mouth lifted. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is, who was, and who is to come. Amen.